2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. You know that phrase, work-life balance? Is that really possible or just some myth we're trying to chase? Today we're focusing on working moms. We know there are more fathers in today's society who have taken on roles traditionally left to women, so no disrespect. But for thousands of years, women have been responsible for raising children and working. In 2019, how has motherhood changed as more women hold higher degrees, have less children, and are trying to build their careers? Is it possible to have it all? Coming up, we'll talk with Caitlin Collins, a sociologist and author of the new book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Are you one of these women? Did your mother hold a job or jobs while raising you? I want to welcome uh, first to our studio Jessica Hendrickson, who's co-manager of the blog Connecticut Working Moms. at ctworkingmoms.com. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you actually uh, live in Middletown. I do. And you're co-manager of this blog that I mentioned. Tell me about the blog and how did you get involved? Um, So um, Connecticut Working Moms is an
1: online Community uh, created in 2011 by Michelle Norin. Um, at the time, she had a, um, a newborn, and she felt just kind of isolated in that situation. Um, so she, her goal was to kind of create this um, online space where uh, mothers could uh, write about their experiences and you know their struggles, and and all from a um, from a place of of vulnerability and, and honesty. Um, and I think I think that's kind of um, why the the website did have such a good response? Because
2: um, people really uh, appreciate the the honesty and the, and the rawness of the writing. So uh, you have a, you're the mother of two children. So when you uh, found this blog and got involved, this helped you as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. Writing is
1: definitely uh, very cathartic for me, um, and I got involved in uh, 2014, and at that time I had. A newborn and a three year old so after a particularly tough day, um it was you know just the the day to day chaos of of having a newborn and, and a three year old is just so so much to handle um i actually I wrote about um about you know just it, the the struggles of of being you know a mother of of two young kids and um but also um the notion that that it uh it is bittersweet also because you know i mean. It, it, this time is fleeting. As, as cheesy and as, as, you
2: know, cliche as it is, it, it's, um, you know, it, it flies by. Uh, you have a, a full-time job working for a large corporation in the state of Connecticut. When you got pregnant the first time, um, how did you decide that um, you were going to go back to work? Was that something that you waffled on? Um,
1: not really. I, um, I knew I was going to go back, um, mostly just for financial reasons. I didn't really have the option Um, but I think even if I, I did, um, I, I like working. Um, I, I don't have the desire to be a stay at home mom. So that, you know, really wasn't, wasn't a decision at the time.
2: Uh, so what was it like for you after having your first child and going back to work? You mentioned that the, the time is fleeting. Uh, did you feel like you were missing out on, on your, your son's uh, milestone?
1: I, I did. It was, ve- it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. I, I really thought I would be anxious to get back into you know, the real world and, and um, you know, talk to adults. Um, but it was, it was very, very hard. And, and I remember um, with, my, with my second son, um, I... It took, I think it was maybe ten weeks off, and he was literally less than ten pounds when I dropped him off at daycare. And it was, I mean, my tiny little baby. Like it was, it was very hard,
2: very hard. Uh, what about your uh, work environment? Uh, did you feel like your supervisors, your coworkers, understand, understood what you were trying to juggle? I.
1: They, uh, well, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I actually work for um, someone who is not married and doesn't have kids. And he's very understanding, um, but to, to the level that he, he can understand. Um, you know, and until you're really in that situation, you know, he's – he's he's uh, you know, he allows me to, you know, be flexible with my time and stuff. But until you're actually in that situation as a parent, like, I don't think there's a way that you can really really get it.
2: Mm. Uh, well, um, before uh, the show, I was asking you about what your support network is like. So you're a single mom. Yes. Uh, what has that been like um, going from being married to trying to figure this all out uh, and doing it on your own?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's been hard. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it all aspects of motherhood are, are, are tough, right? You know, just from... From juggling the the day to day logistics to um, you know that that constant feeling of um, mom guilt <laughs> about everything,
2: um, yeah, it's 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 very hard. <laughs> We'll be talking about that guilt uh, coming up. Uh, uh, But again, uh, in studio with me is Jessica Hendrickson. Uh, She is a Connecticut mom, co-manager of the blog Connecticut Working Moms, uh, our CTWorkingMoms.com. As we take a look at motherhood today, I wanted to bring into the conversation now Caitlin Collins, who's joining us from a studio at Washington University in St. Louis. She's author of the new book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving, also assistant professor of sociology at Washington University. Caitlin, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So uh, mom's been doing it for a long time. What made you decide to research them and write this book?
3: Jessica's story really resonated with me because I grew up with a mom who had her own career ambitions but was also trying to raise two young kids and I have distinct memories of her feeling really stressed and overwhelmed despite being so good at what she did. And my folks got divorced when I was eight, and I watched my mom juggle these dual commitments as a young child and struggle a lot once she became a single mother and eventually decided to quit the job that she loved very much and take a consulting job for far less money that gave her the flexibility and time she wanted to be home with us more. And I grew up thinking to myself, there has got to be A better way to organize work and family life, and to give mothers like mine and like Jessica's the support they need to be able to have a thriving career as well as spend valuable time with their families. So that was the impetus for the project.
2: Uh, You mentioned juggle, and we've been saying uh, juggle earlier too, and none of us have said balance yet. Because Mm -hmm. is balance really attainable? From what you have heard from uh, the mothers you've interviewed, Caitlin.
3: If any of your listeners take away one thing from the segment today, I hope it's that they. Abandon this idea of work family balance talking about balance suggests that this is a highly individual problem and if a mom just balanced a little bit better her life would be better and it puts again the onus on the individual to bring about change that I argue in the book is deeply political and structural. These difficulties are the result of really really intense cultural ideals about what it means to be a good mother and what it means to be a good worker and all of this plays out in a context with the most family hostile public policy of any country in the developed world. The book tries to make an argument for, again, abandoning this concept of balance and instead sparking a conversation and hopefully a movement for work-family justice, which highlights the political nature of these difficulties.
2: Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, individualism and how our, our country was founded on that ideal. And so this idea that if we want to work and have a family, we need to figure it out on our own. There is not a support system in place. Uh, the government doesn't help us like in places like France. And, and you have gone and traveled and talked with women in European countries as well. Is that sense of guilt uh, very unique to uh, American
3: moms? I did interviews with women also in Sweden and Germany and Italy and Women everywhere who are working moms, I think, feel a sense of guilt because the ideals for what it means to be a good mother are really exceedingly high and I would argue unattainable. The difference is that in the U.S., women are trying to achieve that same goal without any support. So in countries like Sweden and in Germany and Italy, women have access to things like paid parental leave, high quality, affordable, universal childcare. And so when Jessica was describing dropping her baby off, who was less than 10 pounds, I'm thinking to myself, you know, What would it have been like for Jessica to make that decision in the context of a country that offered her, for example, in a place like Sweden, 480 days of paid parental leave for a single parent? That's a completely different universe to try and juggle work and family than in the U.S. So, of course, I, my interviews suggested that that guilt is infinitely greater here in the States.
2: Uh, Jessica, with uh, your work on the blog and talking in, uh, with mother, other mothers that are writing for uh, this work, Connecticut Working Moms blog, how do they all deal with that feeling of guilt and where does it come from? I, I
1: think about this a lot um, because, you know, mom guilt is, it is real <laughs> and it it's sucks. <laughs> um, but um, I think a lot of it is self-imposed. Um, we kind of do this to ourselves, but self-imposed or not, um, it's real, you know, and it's something that we struggle with, you know, no matter no matter what we're doing, um, we're always feeling guilty about something.
2: You meant, mentioned self-imposed guilt, but when we also think about judgment, is that also self-imposed? Are we always thinking about how people are uh, uh, judging us for uh, maybe working full-time or maybe deciding to stay at home? Uh, and so I'm just curious what your thoughts are.
1: I think A lot of judgment is self-imposed, but, you know, there there are, um, you know, it it, it also comes from, um, you know, social media and, um, you know, TV and and that kind of thing.
2: Um, I think a lot of it is self-imposed, though. Mm. Jess is calling from Hamden. Jess, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're a mother of two boys, and you are uh, doing full-time work, also uh, looking uh, working on your PhD?
4: Yes, so I have a two-year-old, a six-year-old. I am a full-time instructor um, at a university here in Connecticut, and I am finishing up my PhD. So,
2: <laughs> And so how do you do it all, Jess? <laughs> uh,
4: I, well, I, people ask me that all the time, and I say I cry a lot, and I have a very supportive husband. Um, and i think a lot of the you guys are just talking about the self-imposed guilt and i just had this epiphany it was actually yesterday um, my husband and i are going away at the end of april for two days and he said to me i think i want to take our oldest son he goes you know this would be such a good experience for him and i immediately without hesitation said no no <laughs> this is this is for me as as Jess and not as a mom and not as a wife like I want to go do these things Um, and my boys know I love them and that I would move the world for them if I needed to but I also want them to see me as an independent strong woman um, and be that kind of role model for them and, and making sure that I do put myself first sometimes.
2: Well, Jess, uh, thank you uh, for your call. So, again, uh, trying to find uh, personal space and time and feeling uh, secure in the de- decisions we make uh, as working moms. Uh, Caitlin, when you brought up this idea of, of guilt uh, to European mothers, did they laugh when they heard about this? That we, that we, we here in this country have this, this problem where we, we feel so guilty about the choices we make trying to work and have a family?
3: They didn't laugh. I think they they related. But again, I think it's less acute for mothers there, though, of course, it's not it's not foreign. So in a country like Germany, I heard mothers tell me for example that they have a term in their cultural uh, discourse called kabmuta or raven mother and this is the idea that a woman who doesn't take the full 3 years of available quote unquote generous maternity leave available to her is a bad mother she's a selfish uh, <laughs> a selfish mother who flies away from the nest to pursue a career while leaving her offspring all on their own to raise themselves and women told me in fact that they were called this a kabmuta raven mother by other mothers on the planet playground, by older generations. And this spurred acute sense of guilt for mothers that they were somehow damaging their kids by going back to work at young ages. And of course, all the empirical evidence suggests that this is not the case. Uh, There's a host of of studies that suggest that, in fact, working outside the home for women is a good thing as a role model for for children, but also developmentally for children to be socialized uh, widely by a wide range of people. So yes, uh, they feel guilty as well. I think that they're Shock really related to the lack of policy supports that helped mothers here or really didn't help mothers here like Jessica and Jess uh, balance their work and family life in a more just way.
2: We're going to be talking more about those policies abroad and also uh, here uh, in our country. Um, my guest today, again, Caitlin Collins, author of the new book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving, joining us today from a studio at Washington University in St. Louis. And in the studio with me is Jessica Hendrickson, who is a mother of two and co-manager of the blog Connecticut Working Moms at ctworkingmoms.com. If you're a working mom, we want to hear from you. Uh, how do you do it all? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live i you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 70% of women with children under the age of 18 work outside the home in the United States. That's according to Pew Research. If you're one of them, how do you juggle home and work responsibilities? Do you work in a job that understands your family commitments, or is it a challenge to manage it all? We got uh, several tweets uh, to where we live. Caitlin writes, as a working mom, I find it hard to balance family, life, work, and building a community and support system. I can never give 100% to work, and the same goes for mothering. So there's Guilt because society expects us to give 100% to both. Also, uh, Caroline, uh, Caroline writes, If we had a longer paid family leave in this country, I would have had to schlep my breast pump to work all those months or call out all those times when my baby got sick, and I would have saved literally tens of thousands of dollars in childcare costs. It would be life-changing. And Aaliyah writes, Yes, I'm a working mom. In my opinion, all moms are working moms. Some work inside the home. Some work outside the home. Either way, We're all working. My guest today, Jessica Hendrickson, a Connecticut mom and co-manager of the blog, ctworkingmoms.com. And Caitlin Collins, a sociologist and author of the new book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Uh, Caitlin, I read just a few um, listener uh, tweets to us. Uh, The one about paid family leave uh, goes right into my next question with um, when you mentioned how our country has hostile family policies. So compare and contrast to what we have and what you noticed in Italy Germany and other countries that you've traveled?
3: So the U.S. is really an outlier in providing social supports to working families today. The U.S. is one of the only nations on the planet that doesn't even have the word family in our constitution. Uh, we have no federal body uh, that's responsible for overseeing family issues. We are one of two countries on the planet without federally mandated paid maternity leave. It's just us and Papua New Guinea in that category. We have no national child care system, which most other Western industrialized countries have for their citizens and job security surrounding pregnancy and childbirth is a bit iffy in the u.s. compared to some of these other countries really as you pointed out earlier lucy the issue here is that here in the U.S., we think that families are a personal and private responsibility. We think of children uh, in the U.S. as, again, something to be managed all on one's own. And in these other countries, they understand that raising the next generation of citizens is a collective responsibility. Thinking through children as public goods, future taxpayers, workers, citizens, is central to their welfare states and providing policies for families. And those are supports that we just lack here in the US currently.
2: Uh, some of the policies that you mentioned, uh, as we know, uh, in this country, um, you know, there is a push against uh, socialist uh, practices. Um, so how do you respond uh, to critiques of, say, what France provides uh, their, uh, their working moms?
3: Call it socialism if you want. To me, it makes perfectly good sense to support working families.
2: Um, And when the economy bears that out as well, like a positive uh, impact, uh, if you're able to provide universal pre-K, what it means for uh, families to be able to go back to work, but also provide a support network?
3: Exactly right. And here in the U.S., we have some states, for example, California, Rhode Island, New Jersey, that have implemented paid parental leave programs and The research shows that this has either a neutral or a positive effect on worker productivity, on profitability, on turnover and on morale. So the business case and the economic case are quite clear. These are beneficial policies, of course, for families, but again, also for firms and also for our national economy as a whole to remain internationally competitive in the international market.
2: Uh, Caitlin, I mentioned you work for a large corporation. Uh, Did you feel like the benefits that you had at this particular company um, helped you figure out a way to, um, I'm sorry, Jessica, did it help you figure out a way uh, to figure out how much time you could spend at home before going to work?
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, the the company that I work for um, has a few different options, Um, the standard eight weeks of maternity leave, and then... um, you could add in some sick days, some vacation days. um, but still, even if you put everything you can together, um, it may be twelve, fourteen weeks, which really, I mean, it's not a lot
2: mm-hmm. uh, when you hear about other countries and their what we think are very generous uh, family uh, leave policies, the idea to have a maternity leave for three years, I mean, that's unheard of here, right. and And I think um Caitlin made a, a great point by saying,
1: um, those, those types of policies not only benefit the mothers and the families, but the companies as well. Uh, productivity is, is, is improved, um, morale, just in general, I think it's a, it's a good idea. It just makes sense.
2: Uh, Caitlin Collins, again, author of the new book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Um, Again, you surveyed uh, more than 100 women, uh, not only in the U.S., but uh, in Germany and Italy. Uh, So in America, when you're talking with uh, working mothers, uh, what are some common themes that you heard from them?
3: Well, one of them is this point that Jessica raised a few minutes ago about guilt being self-imposed. And Jessica, my heart goes out to you. I want to reach through the the radio here and give you a hug because the... The message I heard constantly from American mothers is that they felt acute work family conflict, but they blamed themselves for their inability to manage their work and family lives in a harmonious way. And this is not a discourse I heard from moms in Sweden or Germany or Italy. I did interviews with women in their offices, in their homes, in their backyards, and in neighborhood parks and cafes, and moms there do not blame themselves for their work-family conflict. They understand that there are structural reasons why they feel conflicted. So in Sweden, women often talked about these unrealistic cultural ideals. Uh, Germany, same thing. Women talked about really outdated norms for for women and men and when it comes to managing both breadwinning and caregiving. And in Italy, women have a very intense uh, frustration for the lack of support they feel they get from the government. Women in Italy blame them, blamed the government for their work-family conflict. And women here in the U.S. talked constantly, again, about blaming themselves, this being self-imposed. And it's not. It's just not self-imposed. There is no app or book or parenting uh, article, magazine, class you can take that's going to resolve the absolutely crushing guilt and work-family conflict that women here in the U.S. feel. They're set up to fail. And I think that's what Jessica was hinting at earlier, right? Uh, As as were some of the folks who tweeted into the station. If you're expected to give 100% at work and 100% at home, how in the world are you ever going to be able to maintain that with only 24 hours in the day. The issue here, in my mind, is not only unrealistic cultural ideals, but the lack of support, public policy support for families in the US. This is not self-imposed guilt. This is uh, a deeply broken structure that I think we need to overhaul if we want to support women like Jessica.
2: Uh, What do you think of uh, what sociologist Caitlin Collins just said, that in this country, uh, women are set up to fail if they want to be able to have a family and work? Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Caitlin, because you are a sociologist, when we think about mothers, uh, we come in all uh, from different backgrounds and uh, whether some of us have been able to attain higher education or not, the types of jobs we hold, the types of supports. But demographically, when we look at uh, women of color, uh, can you talk a little bit more um, about what your research has found in terms of of uh, you know how they are uh, dealing with the many very many responsibilities and also with a lot of disparity as well.
3: Absolutely. So, heartbreakingly, here in the U.S., women of color tend to dispropor- disproportionately be vulnerable to living in poverty. A phenomenon here in the U.S. we call the feminization of poverty. That's deeply racialized and. Unfortunately, here in the U.S. context, because we don't have these policies available on a federal level, those workers who most need work family policy supports like job security, flexible scheduling, uh, affordable child care that's high quality, as well as paid family leave, not only right after childbirth, but when they, they and their children get sick, it's absolutely vital that these policies be provided at a, at a federal level because it's very often the case that it's low income women and women of color who don't have access to these policies. So in the U.S., folks at the top of the socioeconomic spectrum are three and a half more times, ta- three and a half times more likely to have access to paid family leave than uh, those at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum. And when women of color are facing not only this lack of support, even though they are the ones who need them the most, this plays out in a context, as we know, here in the U.S., where these workers uh, in general already face a host of discrimination that uh, white women don't face. And I, I really felt for the tweet that someone just said that all mothers are working. That's exactly true. Uh, whether or not they work for pay outside the home or work in the home, all these women are working. And it's women of color who very often bear disproportionate responsibility for this sort of labor that comes with no supports here in the States.
2: I mentioned uh, Pew Research uh, Center earlier. Uh, Their research has found among mothers with children younger than 18, it's black women that are most likely to be in the labor force, three-quarters of them, in comparison to about 70% among white mothers and 64% of Asian mothers, a little less uh, of Hispanic mothers. And uh, many, again, uh, of these uh, women who are working are single mothers as well. And so to not have uh, that support in place where you have to maybe get to your job and uh, your child is sick, what do you do? Uh, just, uh, uh, Jessica, have you dealt with that as well in terms of when your child is sick, maybe you don't have uh, the time that you can stay at home? You've got a, maybe a big meeting or presentation to do? Absolutely. I mean, I,
1: I deal with that all the time. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it, well, it's spring now, but th- this winter, you know, my kids are sick on and off throughout the entire winter. Um, so I feel like I'm constantly saying, oh, God, I got to I can't come in till later. I got to leave early. Um, and l- luckily for me, um, I work in an office, but I do have the option to work from home. So that's been um, that's been huge. But but not everybody has that option.
2: Uh, Melanie on Facebook writes, I've had the luxury of staying home when my first child was a newborn, then very gradually increasing part-time hours as both kids got older. Now they're in their teens. I work three days a week, which seems about right, but I unexpectedly became widowed and understand better than before the stress single moms face. I wish all moms could have more flexibility in how much or how little they work. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk about uh, some women who choose to open up their own businesses to strive for that flexibility. Uh, Bill is calling from Vernon. Bill, go ahead.
5: My wife mentioned to me, we're in the car together, that uh, she feels like there's a lot of guilt put on women for not working. And and it, the point is really generational. We're the first generation that sort of started to wholesale throw kids in daycare because um, we're in our 50s. We didn't. My wife uh, focused on raising the children and worked part-time. Uh, but of course, her earnings were a fraction of what they would be. And we've also discovered, of course, after 20 years of raising children, that well, the basic attitude is well, and from women, well, I raised my kids and I worked, so it's like it. So you sort of get slammed by this generational shift. Whereas our our parents, and I'm talking middle class and upper middle class people here. Of course, that that's the that's the other thing that nobody really talks very much about is that poor poor people have been working. All hours of the day and night since the beginning of time. So these are very much middle class sensibilities that we're going to discuss for the most part.
2: Bill, thank you for a call. Uh, Caitlin
3: Collins, did you want to respond? Yeah, I think he's exactly right. Here in the U.S., we are part of a generation today where women are told that they can have it all. They can have thriving careers uh, and very contented family lives. The problem, of course, here is that if women choose not to do both those things simultaneously, they're seen somehow... um, as not living up to these cultural ideals of being able to have it all. So again, as as the caller pointed out, this is a lose-lose. If women decide to stay home and be stay-at-home mothers and do that absolutely valuable labor of raising their kids, uh, it's very difficult for them to re enter the labor force later in life. Uh, sometimes they, I think that, that Culturally, we disparage folks who decide to stay home, which I think is problematic. And then on the other hand, if you do go back to work, you're disparaged for not staying home to care for your kids. So these competing cultural ideals really, again, set women up for a lose-lose scenario. You're guilty no matter what. And I think that's deeply problematic. It again, gets back to this idea of personal responsibility. If you can't figure out how to do both at the same time, here in the U.S., we have a discourse, again, that it's your own fault. Mm-hmm. Enrique is calling from Hamden. Go ahead, Enrique.
6: Hey, uh, I guess I have two comments, uh, one being that, you know, we talk about these European countries uh, when Canada just above us gives uh, their families a year and they can split that between the parents. Connecticut has a law which extends unpaid leave, but obviously that's a totally different burden. And uh, from a personal uh, story side of it, my wife, for our first child, had two weeks paid and uh, well, two, p- two weeks of maternity and then two weeks unpaid. And, you know, over time, progressively, we've gotten more benefit because she became eligible for um, family leave. But uh, you notice that benefit as it pays out to the development of the child as well. Uh, my company further uh, extended uh, parent leave. So I got to stay home over a month with the child and, and that bond at the early age and that interaction going on in life, it, it pays dividends and it's
5: very visible.
2: Uh, very good points, Enrique. Uh, Caitlin Collins, did you want to respond to Enrique?
3: Yeah, thank you, Enrique. I think, again, this lack of paid family leave here in the US It's hurting American children. It's hurting American families, uh, as well as businesses and the national economy as a whole. I want to highlight the fact that a lot of the folks, uh, Lucy, that you've been bringing on either as callers or tweets or Facebook messages have talked about feeling lucky or or the luxury of having time to spend with their family right after their children are born. And to me, this is discourse, of luck, of it being a luxury to have policy support, is so indicative of the larger problem here. Because we live in a nation where these policies are not available to all families, they're not universal, women, primarily white women and middle and upper class women, have access to policy supports, and they know that lower-income women and women of color very often don't have access to these policies. So it's completely logical that women would feel lucky or grateful or privileged to have these All women deserve these policy supports. This is a no-brainer. The rest of the Western industrialized world has gotten on board with the idea that all families need time to take care of a newborn afterward and that they need to be paid for that. FMLA, yes, it's nice to have 12 weeks of job-protected leave, but it's unpaid. How many workers in the U.S. workforce can afford to go 12 weeks without pay? Again, it's not the discourse of luck suggests, again, that women here... uh, how to explain women here in the U.S., if we talk about them feeling lucky, this absolves them and absolves all of us from mobilizing to try and get these policies passed at a national level. Again, this in, this discourse of luck to me goes hand in hand with this discourse of balance. The idea that this is highly individualized and you can feel lucky that your employer allows you one month of paid leave, as Enrique pointed out. What I want to highlight is that all parents deserve time off that's compensated to raise their child well in the first months of their lives before they go to child care. And this is vital for all of us. To me, again, the US is an outlier, and it's absolutely vital that these policies be provided for all, which suggests we need to talk about this as a right rather than a privilege.
2: Enrique also made the point, not just developmentally, it's better for the child to be able to stay home with uh, his mom or father or both um, before um, having to go on uh, to child care. And that's not something that gets a lot of attention um, about the bond that needs to be uh, between uh, the, the child and the parents, Caitlin.
3: Exactly right. So if, if a woman decides or chooses to breastfeed her children that we know has plenty of developmental uh, positive outcomes for babies... Of course, when a woman has to go back to work and pump in the office. I spoke to one mom in Washington, D.C., who told me she, again, used this discourse of luck to say she was lucky enough to have a lactation room in her firm, which we know is a rarity in U.S. workplaces. But she went back to work after just a couple of months, and she wanted to keep breastfeeding her child, so she was pumping in the office. And the lactation room was a 12-minute walk one way from her desk. So she was pumping three times a day, which meant she was spending an hour and a half walking to and from the lactation room. And she ended up buying a product that allowed her to sit in her cubicle and pump underneath a poncho at her desk because she didn't want to waste time walking back and forth, right? This could all be resolved rather than, again, the highly individualistic solution, though of course a logical one of buying a product to allow you to pump at your desk, would be to offer family leave so that women could stay home, breastfeed their children, wean them, and then return to the workplace.
2: Uh, Caitlin, uh, in Connecticut, uh, they are uh, having a debate within our legislature of whether there should be paid family leave. And, you know, part of some of the sentiment that I hear, I'm having covered this story and hearing from people, is that there's this idea that people will take advantage. We can't uh, provide this kind of service because people will take advantage. Where does that come from?
3: I think it, again, gets back to the the idea of personal responsibility. And here in the U.S., we have a very difficult time thinking through what it would mean to pay into a system that supports all families. We, again, think about children here in the U.S. as, as private responsibilities. Don't have a child if you can't take care of that child. But we need to put this in a broader context. All of us have agreed collectively as Americans that, for example, public education from the ages of five to eighteen is in the best interest of all children. Why not extend that sort of discourse toward early childhood education and care, which is on the, uh, uh, which is an initiative in in the state of Connecticut, as well as something like paid family leave? I don't even know what it means to take advantage of paid family leave. Take advantage of. Mm-hmm time with your child (laughs) to me that just seems like a a no-brainer and something again that everybody needs at some point in their lives Mm -hmm. not just after kids are born but across the life course
2: that's true Uh, this paid family leave policy so uh, we all have parents who are elderly or are aging or maybe we'll have a spouse or family member uh, who will uh, end up getting an illness so these are again policies that would help them as well not just for people having children I want to take a quick call in just a second but there was a comment and on Facebook I wanted to direct to my in-studio guest Jessica Hendrickson who is a Connecticut mom and blogs for ctworkingmoms.com Susan writes there's a separation between women who work outside of the home and women who stay at home breeding a great deal of resentment between these groups of women if you're not running around and juggling 18 things I feel like you're looked down upon it's so sad it has made me feel so inadequate I wanted to uh, Again, uh, have Jessica respond to this because I think part of the blog's uh, point too is to uh, to not have that judgment whether a, a mother decides uh, to stay at home or uh, work outside in the office. Right, and um, and I feel that when that
1: judgment is removed, um, you know, I mean, we we all we all parent differently, and um, we make drastically different decisions for our children, but. I think what we have to recognize is that ultimately our motivation is the same. We are motivated to make the decisions that we make out of love for our children. And I think when we recognize that in each other, um, you know, it brings that feeling of unity
2: and sisterhood rather than, you know, kind of tearing us apart. Shelley from Stanford is calling in. Shelley, go ahead.
7: this is so interesting because there really is no judgment. Um, I have to work. Period. That's it. And some people don't because of economic. Economically, they don't have to. And there's a huge difference between that. And to, to hear you folks say that there's a choice that really is not a choice in so many cases. And the whole fact that, you know, all women work. Yeah, that's fine. But there's a difference between the woman who is bringing their three-year-old to music class and the woman who is bringing their three-year-old to childcare under the gun to get on the train to get into the city in order to do what they need to do to put food on the table. There is a huge disparity between those two. And to hear you folks say that if there's a choice, there is not necessarily a choice in all situations, and it's very frustrating to hear.
2: Well, let me get the guest to respond uh, to your point. Uh, Caitlin Collins, did you want to respond to uh, Shelley calling in that says that not everyone has that choice? We did bring that up earlier.
3: Absolutely, we did. Uh, this is a forced choice. I think that that is a much more logical term here. The idea that some women would choose to stay home or choose to work doesn't make a lot of sense. Again, in a context with in a context with very little policy supports, these are forced choices women are making. The opportunity cost is much higher for high-income women to leave the workforce and stay home to take care of their kids. And for, for lower-income women, very oftentimes, the cost of child care it, it either meets or exceeds the salary they would earn if they were to work outside the home. And what this ends up doing is pushing women out of the workforce and into the home, which we know plays out differently for women, again, of different races and different socioeconomic statuses. Again, the discourse I want to try to highlight here, that this is a choice and that women are fighting other women or judging other women or disparaging other women. Uh, this mommy wars talk we've heard in the U.S. Y'all, that... <laughs> Jessica really made me laugh when she, when she said this is about a sisterhood. You're exactly right, Jessica. The, it, it. Turning against one another as women for the decisions you make about how you want to manage work and family is completely illogical, right? Rather than directing this frustration or anger at one another as women, we need to, again, I think, channel that frustration and anger at the lack of larger structural supports. Getting mad at one another prevents us from mobilizing to try and obtain the sort of support that all women and families deserve so that, again, they have the ability to choose more freely, whether to work at, at, or stay home, right? This is again, I think, as Shelley pointed out, it's a forced choice, not a not a freely made one.
2: Well, I want to thank uh, Jessica Hendrickson, who's in studio with me, co-manager of the blog, ctworkingmoms.com, for joining us today. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Caitlin Collins, you just heard from, author of the new book, Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. She's going to stick around. Uh, She's joining us from a studio at Washington University in St. Louis. And coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, different approaches women take uh, to juggle family with work, with the bills we have to pay, with our responsibilities. Uh, Some women choose entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. We're going to hear more about that. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalba Now, we've been talking about working moms today with guest Caitlin Collins, author of the book Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. What draws some women to start their own businesses? Does entrepreneurship help women juggle work with motherhood? For some perspective, Fran Pastore is joining us, founder and CEO of the Women's Business Development Council. It's a nonprofit uh, here in our state. Fran, welcome to the show. Thank
0: you so much for having me.
2: I understand that you started uh, the Women's Business Development Council as a working mom. Uh, What was your experience like?
0: Well, um, I was a single unemployed mom at the time that I started the Women's Business Development Council 22 years ago. Um, And I did it for so many of the reasons that um, these other... Wonderful guests have talked about, talked about. Um, I had had a career on Wall Street. I lived in Stanford. I had a two year old and a four year old and unexpectedly found myself divorced without any financial resources to, um, prop myself up. And one of the things that I knew and I was adamant about was that I wanted my daughters to be confident, um, financially independent young women, and I wanted them to have a positive role model in their life. Because culturally, from where I came from, a very provincial Italian household, I did not see that. And so I started thinking about what I had in my my toolbox that I could use to help myself, and I happened to stumble upon the fact that Connecticut was the only state in the country without a resource to help women entrepreneurs start and grow sustainable enterprises. And uh, as a born feminist and someone who always cared about small business, I realized that I had something as a single unemployed mother. I had a posse of very um, smart, wise, and educated girlfriends who helped me take care of my kids while I embarked on this journey.
2: So Fran, 22 22 years later, you're helping uh, women start their own businesses. Uh, what brings them to your nonprofit for help? Well, you know,
0: it's really a universal interest in having, um, being in control of one's own destiny, um, looking for some kind of financial um, independence. And I would say the number one list, and you'll find this at any report that you look at on women-owned businesses in our country, is really the flexibility to make their own choices and be available to their family.
2: Fran, uh, Lorena had called in earlier. We didn't have time to take her call. She was calling from New Haven. Uh, She uh, told us, uh, as a working mom, I feel like taking care of my kids is keeping me stuck in my social class and I can't move up. Uh, What would you tell her in terms of how you're helping women?
0: Well, you know, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. Um, oftentimes, people come to us and they say, I want to want to have more time with my family, and so I'm going to start my own business. No, that's not the way it goes. What you will find is that you are working 24-7, harder than you've ever worked in your life, but you can do it when you need to do it. So that's the first thing I'd say about entrepreneurship. The second thing I would say about um, that the the Facebook tweet or post that came in is that one of the things that helped me that I would not have been able to start this business without was access to resources in my community and the greater community at large. And I think that's something that we often don't um, look to for support. Community centers, religious or cultural, are there really to help us. They do cost money, but there are opportunities to um, defray some of those costs, and those are the important things to think about. My favorite mantra is "Ask and you shall receive."
2: Mm. Uh, Caitlin, call and, on. you know,
0: I, I, I'm sorry.
2: go, oh, ahead. go ahead. You want to finish? No, your I was point. going to
0: say that I gave up a very potentially lucrative career um, for, in exchange, to be available and to live and work in the same community that my children went to school in. Um, so I had a lot of flexibility, and I took advantage of resources that were available to me um, in, in the socioeconomic place that I was in. Caitlin Collins
2: is with us as well, Fran. She's a sociologist and author of this uh, book on motherhood. Um, As you've traveled around again, interviewing middle class mothers, not only in this country, but abroad, um, what have you learned from them in terms of of trying to seek that flexibility, uh, Caitlin? And, um, you know, is entrepreneurship something that they are turning to?
3: So flexibility is the crux of so many of the issues that that we've been talking about on the show today. All parents, women and men, need this sort of flexibility uh, in order to manage their their non-work and work responsibilities, as do folks who don't have kids. All of us have stuff outside of the the workday that sometimes requires our attention. So flexibility is absolutely vital. What we see in other cases, like Sweden, for example, is that parents have the legal right to reduce their schedule by 25% to a 30-hour work week until their child is 8 years old. That feels like an absolute impossibility here in the context of the U.S., right? But again, providing a policy like that at the federal level suggests that it's okay to take time off of work to manage outside of work uh, tasks such as child rearing. And again, not only is this offered, but it's also used regularly by folks across the socioeconomic spectrum. So I I talked to folks who, for example, their partner was a surgeon and that surgeon made sure to leave work every day by 3 p.m. to pick up uh, her daughters at the end of the day or uh, someone who manages a multimedia marketing company and they leave. So if the managers are doing this sort of thing, it sends the signal all the way through their workplace that it's OK who, again, have responsibilities outside of the job that require your time sometimes. And that's completely missing from the cultural discourse. So I think it's logical that women t- here in the States, especially uh, ones that Fran has helped through her nonprofit, turn to entrepreneurship because flexibility is absolutely vital and it's completely lacking uh, from the perspective of businesses. It's very difficult to find jobs that are flexible today. And when they are, it's sometimes uh against the mm-hmm. will of workers, for example, uh, low-income workers who work in, for example, retail jobs where they only learn about their shifts on a Sunday evening before the next work week starts. Uh, that's an unwanted flexibility. I think a lot of other workers, especially those who are higher income, would desire more flexibility and more time outside mm-hmm. of the workforce.
2: Uh, we just have uh, another minute, uh, unfortunately, uh, but Caitlin, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, is there anything special happening in the terms of uh, the moment that we're in in the United States where we're actually going to see Uh, maybe uh, movement towards policies that will help families uh, like some of our European counterparts.
3: I think it is a really exciting time here in the U.S. I think motherhood and families and the need to support them is now part of the national conversation politically. We see a number of presidential candidates who are women talking about the their responsibilities for caregiving. And I think that being part of the national conversation will, again, hopefully lead to political will to pass policies like, again, all other Western industrialized nations have already.
2: Caitlin Collins, author of the book Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers in Caregiving. Thank Thanks so much. Thank you. Also, Fran Pastore, who we met at our coffee break in New London, her actually one of her staff members for the Women's Business Development Council, a nonprofit based in Connecticut. She's Fran is the founder and CEO of this council. Fran, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it.
0: Thank
2: you. Bye-bye. And We'll uh, sh- share a link on our web- website uh, to that council for our listeners to learn more information. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown and Seth Blair, thanks to Carmen Baskoff on the phones, Our Pro- technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshal. As always, thanks for listening.